0: Well, we are concluding our series on Genesis this morning, which is a smaller part of the larger series that we're doing over the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. I was talking to somebody, a member of the church last week, um, and they were saying that uh, they've really appreciated that the series, um, but that their perspective about Joseph has really changed. Um, Joseph was one of their big heroes of the Bible and the story of God's deliverance of Israel through Joseph was one of his favorite stories. And it got me thinking, um, why is Joseph everybody's hero? It's pretty common. And uh, you know, the text gives us some clues, he's handsome, he's very capable, supremely capable, he's powerful, he's an underdog that came from pretty stiff odds against him, Uh, he's fairly innocent, he seems to avoid any sort of sexual temptation. Uh, and he ends up being the savior to not only his family, but, but really all of the known world at the time. Um, but the, the questions that we need to ask ourselves as we read are, um, you know, does Joseph, does Joseph reflect the concerns of the text? You know, is he, is he in pursuit of the ways of God that are characterized by righteousness and justice? Um, and is he primarily concerned about the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his family? Is he concerned about God's purposes? You know, as an individual, if you look at him, he's he's a pretty great guy. But uh, is he concerned about these larger things? And these are the same questions that we need to ask, our, ask ourselves. And I was interacting a little bit this week with, with Micah, and he sent me a... Um, an article written by a gentleman named his last name is Kingsnorth and he he is using this term that he calls narrative fracture to to describe where we are at in our culture we are in a we are in a time where there's no agreed upon narrative in our world that governs how we all see life and what it's about and why it's important it's just, it's the same thing as the historian Morris Berman's comment that when a, when a nation loses a national unifying spirit, it's, it's on its decline. There was the West, or the, the West had Christendom where Christianity largely defined the big picture narrative that everybody kind of ascribed to. And then once Christianity kind of waned, progress, progress really pushed Christianity out. But now it's pretty clear that progress isn't something that we can all hold on to. Now there's nothing that's a fractured, there's fractured narrative. What's emerging, he argues, is this merger of the state, merger of corporations, and the merger of technology and technological power, global tech. That's what's emerging now as the defining reality. And that, uh, and which would be much like uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, if you're familiar with that. If you haven't read it, you should read it because you'd like, man, this is really coming true in our day. Orgatica, if you've seen that movie, it's, this, it's where the state and large corporations and technology really become the controlling force and, and dominating narrative that everybody's kind of got to fall into place with. And he argues that COVID is kind of a window that we can see all of these fractured narratives, all of the challenges around um, what the pandemic has done. So he says that, you know, this emerging order of state and technology and corporations really pushes the, you know, Strong on maxi- vaccines, strong on masks, all of the, the regulations and mandates that come. And so there's just this increasing, um, seeming like taking control because of this, this vaccine problem, the pandemic and the, the virus. And then there's the other side, and it's anti. And so there's a thesis, there's an antithesis, there's an order, there's an anti-order. And it doesn't really matter where you're at, um, in terms of what you think you should do about vaccines or no vaccines, um, because that's not really the narrative. The narrative is, are you going to ascribe that the solution to our problems is what's emerging from the state and technology and large corporations, um, or are you going to ascribe to the belief that these, all of these things are oversold, they're taking away our freedom, and so what we've got to do is fight this emerging establishment. Those are the two big ideas. And it's important that you know, we ask these questions that the text is, is pushing us to ask of the characters in the text, but also of ourselves. Because if we ask Joseph, Joseph, you seem to be an incredible person but are you concerned about the concerns that God is concerned about? Are you trying to strengthen and build up your family, which is the means through which God is going to bring salvation to the world, this promised offspring, and with whom he's made this covenant? Or are you just in pursuit of what's going to help and make you better? And so, the story that we've come to now with, with Jacob's children, you've got the two sons. You've got Joseph, which was presented in chapter 37, and you've got Judah, that was presented in chapter 38, and you really have two competing views of the world. Is it going to be Egypt, or is it going to be Israel? We have these same kinds of questions. There's There are narratives that the world is articulating, that is calling us to ascribe to, calling us to believe, to set and, and put our lives around, um, or not. And if we don't have a bigger picture, if we don't have a bigger picture that we can see the world's narratives in, by default, we're going to grab onto one of the world's narratives because there's no alternative. We, we have to have some guiding story for our lives. It answers the questions that we all ask. What is the meaning of life? What, is the, what am I here for? What should I be doing? What is my calling? How am I to use my gifts and resources? How do I interpret my life in this world? We've got to have something that answers those questions for us. So before we just jump in here to the last 12 or 13 chapters, I know Amanda read a lot, but uh, I'm trying to condense 14 chapters into a 35, 40-minute sermon. You really need to see Genesis in two parts. Chapters 1 through 11 introduces us to God creating the world, and where we see humans choosing to live life on their own and to try to live life apart from the author of life, which is God. And so what we see emerge in chapters 1 through 11 are violence, murder, polygamy, abuse towards women and children especially, the undermining of family, pride in what humans can do, and eventually God has to, uh, well, first of all, he destroys all creation except for Noah and his family, and from that he brings another other people, but then they get to the Tower of Babel, and, for, and, and God chooses to divide up all of the world into nations of various languages just to keep them from this dominating, oppressive, self-sufficient, proud perspective of the world, and he limits their lifespans. And so you have all of the nations now of the world. And so God begins working with a nation, a family, and that's 12 through 50, this family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God calls this nation, this family, out of the families and nations of the world to demonstrate his ways, the ways of righteousness and the ways of justice. And so this last section, chapter 37 through 50, is the last generations of. Okay, the story of Genesis, the book of Genesis is broken down into these sections that begin with these are the generations of. We are in the last section. So we have 12 sons. Jacob has 12 children. We're introduced to three of them at the beginning, which we've done the last several weeks. We have Reuben, who's the firstborn but has slept with his father's wife, and so he's kind of out of contention because we're asking the question of, Joseph's, of Jacob's children, who is going to emerge as the carrier of this offspring? Who's going to take leadership of this family and this nation? We have Judah. Judah's the fourth child of his first wife, Leah, and we've seen that he abandoned his family and ended up sleeping with his daughter-in-law from which he repented and saw how he, in his attitude towards his family and towards his own sons and their families, was an unrighteous person and then went back to his family. And then we have Joseph, who was sold into Egypt. His family didn't know what was going on with him, um, and his father thinks he's dead. So, of the three brothers that have been introduced to us, which is it going to be? Well, the story picks back up with Joseph. So he's sold into Egypt in the house of Potiphar, who was Pharaoh's bodyguard. His wife accuses him of cheating. Well, his wife accuses him of attempting to rape her, Potiphar's wife. And so he gets put into prison. And while he's in prison, he interprets some dreams dreams of the baker and of the, the cupbearer for Pharaoh. You guys are familiar with the story. I'm just kind of going th- through it quick. If you're not familiar, I encourage you to read 30, chapters 37 through 50. So he's in prison. He interprets these dreams. And the cupbearer recalls when he's back in Pharaoh's service, the cupbearer recalls Joseph interpreting the dream because Pharaoh has a dream himself. And so they call Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream correctly, and then Pharaoh makes him second in command of all Egypt. Eventually there's a famine because that's what Joseph predicted and interpreted from Pharaoh's dream. And Joseph sets up this system to where he's able to prevent the worst effects of the famine on the nation of Egypt as well as the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they come to Egypt for food. And so Joseph and his brothers meet for the first time in about 20 years. So Joseph recognizes his brothers and accuses them of spying. And they said, no, we're not spies. We have a family back in in Canaan, we have, an, we have an old father. We have a younger brother. And he says, well, prove that it's true. I want you to, to go back, and I want you to get your youngest brother that you say you have. But you need to leave one of your brothers here. So they go back, and eventually they need to get some more food. Jacob did not want to take, let them take Benjamin back with him, but they eventually persuade him. Judah persuades him, no, in order for us to go back to Egypt to buy more food we need to go back, and Benjamin needs to come with us. And so they go back. Joseph sees them. They have a big party. And then Joseph allows all of them to go back home, but he hides one of his goblets in Benjamin's bag. So they all leave, but then he sends out his agents and says, one of those men stole my goblet. So they chase after him. They eventually catch up with the 12 brothers, and they find the goblet in Benjamin's bag. So they all have to go back now and stand before Joseph and give an account for what happened. And so that leads then to Joseph saying this to his 12 brothers. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground, and Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found." But he, Joseph, said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And so Judah was, he he steps forward and says, Listen, all of us will stay here as your servants, for we have sinned against you. We have sinned against God. God has found out the guilt referring to when they sold their brothers or where they attempted to sell their brother Joseph into into slavery. But Joseph says, no, I don't want all of you to stay as my servants. I only want the man who's responsible for taking the goblet, which is Benjamin, his younger brother. And so you have to, and this is is Joseph's line in the sand. This is where, this is his last statement. This is where things would have ended up. But then Judah steps up. Well, you have have to ask yourself, what is Joseph after? And the answer to that can only really be one thing. He wants Benjamin to stay with him. Why would he want Benjamin to stay with him? One, he still doesn't trust his brothers. They tried to sell him off after starting to plan his murder. So Joseph still believes that his brothers are untrustworthy with the life of Benjamin, who's still the favorite now that Joseph's gone in the eyes of his father. Benjamin is now the favorite son because he's the second son of Rachel, which was Jacob's favorite wife of his four wives. The second reason is that that Joseph wants Benjamin to stay is that he still believes that his father is to some degree responsible for the mess that he's in. Remember, Jacob sent Joseph knowing that they didn't like him. Knowing that, that Joseph had these arrogant statements and dreams and visions about himself over his brothers. So Jacob sent Joseph into the midst of that potentially violent situation. And so, Joseph doesn't trust his brothers, and he still holds his dad to some degree responsible. So then Judah steps up with this speech, and it's considered certainly the, the best speech, or the finest speech in all of Genesis. Some say it's the best one in all of the Pentateuch, second to Moses, but some believe it's second to Moses' speech that we'll get to, and I think it's in Numbers, or Je- Exodus. It's, it's, an, it's an amazing, it takes up a large portion of text. Amanda read it this morning. And we really need to attend ourselves to it. I'm not going to read it again, but he does a number of things in this speech to Joseph, who he doesn't know is Joseph. But the first thing he does is that he draws Joseph in and, and tells Joseph that in some degree he is responsible this. This was all of his plan. They just came to buy food. If he hadn't have interfered with them, everything would be fine. Second, it absolves Jacob. It absolves Jacob of the responsibility, of any responsibility that he had, because he articulated, he said that his father, so he was quoting his dad, his father went out. Excuse me, Joseph went out. He was not sent. It's it's just a a subtle statement that is made. But it it doesn't put Jacob in the place of sending out. It puts Joseph in the place of going out. It's very subtle. Number three, in the speech he acknowledges his father Jacob's favoritism. Twenty years earlier, that favoritism... That Jacob showed to Joseph led to the br- and Joseph's arrogance led to their first of all a planned murder, but then the second alternative was to sell him. Now Judah can look the favoritism of his father; he can look at it frankly and just say what it is. It's a matter of fact thing. He's no longer emotionally disturbed by his father's favoritism. And the fourth thing, the most important, is that he now is in a place where he is willing to give his life for the life of Benjamin, for the well-being of the father, and the well-being of the family. And in all of this, he's exemplifying leadership to his brothers. 20 years earlier, as a group of 11 brothers, they were going to kill and sell off Joseph. Now Joseph is stepping up, and he is, he is fighting for, against the most powerful man in the world, he's fighting for the unity and the integrity of his family and the well-being of his father. He's in a completely different state than he was in 20 years earlier. Well, the story's not over at that point. Joseph breaks down. And so, I, you know, it's, it's common for us, it seems like, or I think we read it, where this has been the whole plan of Joseph's all along, to invite his family back in. That's really not the case. Joseph's plan was to send his entire family back and to keep Benjamin. But he broke down. He broke down. And so Joseph wants to bring all of the family to Egypt, in the middle of this famine, so that they, their lives would be preserved. Jacob is not thrilled with this idea that, that Joseph has, but God affirms it. Because remember, Egypt is always this, this, this opposing, this alternative vision of life compared to Israel and the ways of God. Well, Jacob lives for 17 more years, and so Jake, Joseph was 17 before he was taken into Egypt, and now here, so he was a part of Jacob's life, or Joseph's life, excuse me, for 17 years. And now in the last 17 years of his life, he gets to spend with Joseph. But during those 17 years, he observes Joseph as an Egyptian. Joseph has become an Egyptian. He doesn't live with the family. So the family lives in Goshen. It's a part of Egypt. For Joseph to visit his family he's got to go to a different place, lives in a different place than the rest of his family. And he has administered, he's the prime minister of Egypt. He's run the country. And the end result of his efforts to um, counteract the famine that came upon the world at that time is eventually he enslaves the entire world, the, excuse me, the entire country to Pharaoh. They spend all of their money on food to survive. Then they sell their livestock to Pharaoh to survive. Then they sell their lands to Pharaoh to survive. And then they end up selling themselves to Pharaoh to survive. This is all Joseph's idea. This is all Joseph's idea. And so Jacob is observing this. And the story unfolds, Jacob's not real happy with the world vision that Joseph has adopted. And so, Joseph comes in with his two sons to be blessed by his father Jacob. And what does Jacob do? And I've always had this question in my mind, but it became, it, the answer became clear in this story. So when Israel goes into the land... It is the 11 tribes of Israel and the two half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh are the two children of Joseph. What Jacob does is he tells Joseph, I am taking your two sons, and they are going to be mine, just like Reuben and Simeon are mine. Anybody else born will be yours, but these two sons are mine, and they will share in the inheritance with the rest of your brothers. There is no tribe for Joseph. Joseph has become an Egyptian. So what Jacob does is he removes Joseph from the inheritance of land in Israel his sons are going to take it instead. His sons will carry his name. Jacob eventually died and is buried, but before he does that, he blesses all 12 children. And the two blessings, the two prominent blessings, are to Judah and to Joseph. Judah's blessing is the blessing that is the blessing where he is indicating that Judah will be the one that carries this trajectory of, of being the ancestor to this future promised offspring. It is Judah that will lead his family. It will be Judah that all of his brothers bow down to, and not just his brothers, but the nations will bow down to Judah, to the offspring of Judah. So remember when Joseph had the dreams of 11 stars and the sun and the moon bowing down to him, and he interpreted that as, hey, my my entire family is going to bow down to me. That partially happened in Egypt, but it will ultimately be fulfilled not in all of these things bowing down to, to Joseph, but to Judah, whose offspring is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph's blessing has two dominant themes to it. Blessing and prosperity and abundance, which he certainly exhibited while in Egypt. The second part, though, is is a reminder. It's, It's almost an instructive blessing to Joseph. Listen, it was God, God Almighty, that did this work in you and through you. It wasn't yourself. It was God. And God will continue to be the one that blesses you. And so you end... You end this, this, and then there's other details to the other brothers, but these are the two primary ones. So, you get the, 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 the sense that you get for the future of Israel is that it will be a, a nation characterized by the prosperity and blessing of Joseph, but led by Judah. And then we come to the end of the story. Jacob's died. Joseph gets to be about 110 years old. And like his father, he asked, Do not bury me here in Egypt. When the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob leads you out from here, take me with you. And it seems small and insignificant. But if you remember, but if you remember from the story, one of Jacob's last requests to his son Joseph and to all of his sons was that, "Do not bury me here in Egypt." Abraham bought a place. Abraham and his wife got buried there. Sarah, Isaac, and his wife Rebecca were buried there. Do not bury me in Egypt. I buried my wife Leah there. I want to be buried in the in the Promised Land. It was a very urgent thing, and he made joseph promised him to do that and so when joseph requests to his brothers hey take my body away from egypt when you go it reflected that even though joseph came out from his family became an egyptian emerged to the top of the society and power in the nation of Egypt. At the end of his life, Joseph was in a place where he acknowledged, my eternity is not with Egypt. My eternity is with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is who I am, and that's where I belong. And so it's really a long story of the redemption of the whole family, certainly the redemption of Judah and his rise to leadership over the whole family, but eventually it is indeed the redemption of Joseph as well. So that's the story, just 12 or 14 chapters there. So the conclusion and then the application coming from um, this part, but I think all of Genesis. I think there's an individual application and there's an application for us as a church. First of all, as an individual, God is calling all individuals, every single human being, to this wholehearted life before him that is characterized by justice and righteousness. Righteousness is, is having a right relationship with God and what he defines to be right and true and good. And this is, I think, one of the biggest challenges we have in our culture. What is it, does it mean to be right? Because it's also you are right with people. And our world has a lot of different definitions about what it means to live right with people and right before God, if, even if it acknowledges God. And then the work of justice is where we, where we see that, that unrighteousness exists, where we see a gap between what God calls us to and where we're really at. The work of justice is to work things towards the place of righteousness. And if you look at Judah, Judah exemplifies this, this, this vision of the world as an individual. So he at first he abandoned his family. He neglected and rejected Tamar in order to protect himself. And then he brings everybody together to burn her alive because she's now pregnant, which turns out to be with his child. So in this, in this public scene, she's about to be burnt alive. It's revealed that he is the unrighteous one. And so he publicly declares his unrighteousness and her righteousness. And then he begins to work justice. He no longer sleeps with Tamar. He no longer he doesn't take another wife. He is celibate for the rest of his life in this work of justice and repentance. And then he begins to take the lead with his family, with his father, with his brothers, with the Most powerful man in the world, his brother Joseph, and is willing to lay his life down as an example to his brothers and to bring peace and unity to his family. Judah is the Christ type in the book of Genesis. We have to ask the question, what brings about this change in Judah? It's interesting to think, you know, the Holy Spirit isn't gifted to people like now. They didn't have a Bible. God spoke to individuals in brief times separated by large amounts of time. And the text never says that God spoke to Judah. The text never gives us any indication of Judah even praying. I think that what, what the text is showing is that hu, you know, humanity was made in the image of God. Humanity is designed to live this wholehearted, unified life before God. Even, even when we are broken as human beings, which is all of us, our base state, our beginning place, is this place of unity and peace with God. Judah's rebellion from his family, Judah's separation from his his dad and his brothers, his marrying of a of a Canaanite woman and then not being faithful to that, to to his family and to his sons, was not just a, a family thing, it was also rebellion and separation from God. But Judah eventually got to the point where he acknowledged and confessed his unrighteousness. He was completely broken. And the text indicates that this completely changed him. He saw God's mercy and God's favor towards his family. He saw his own brokenness. And when you see your own brokenness, what happens is that you don't look at others with the same degree of arrogance and pride as you did before. You look, at, you look at other people and their brokenness and their unrighteousness in humility and in forgiveness and in mercy because you've, you, you have such a grasp of how unworthy and unrighteous you are. It changes the way you see other people. And because God hasn't destroyed you, it changes the way you see God. I believe it was this, this, this God-imageness that he had. That was that was healed. That was healed. Now, in the terms of the plan of God, Re- Romans chapter three says that that God looked over the sins previously committed prior to Christ. But when Christ died on the cross and resurrected from the dead, it took care of all of those sins previously committed. So, in terms of like, you know, when was Joseph saved and all, or Ju- Judah saved and all that? That's not really the question. what, what you see here is a dramatic change in the life of Judah, where he is running away from family and running away from God. Twenty years later, he's doing the exact opposite because of a sense of his unrighteousness and of God's calling of his family. It's the first time he experienced what it meant to live before God wholehearted and free. And it's our unwillingness to be wholehearted that prevents us from living this life of freedom, of honesty and sincerity. We have to be honest and sincere with our weaknesses, our challenges, and our sins, because only when we do that are we able to see the grace of God available to us and and to have mercy with the people around us. See, I, I think that... When we're not wholehearted with our weaknesses before God and others, essentially we're trying to be like Joseph, our hero. Who wouldn't want to be like Joseph? Highly capable, overcoming anything, pure, successful, rich, young, powerful, beautiful, honored. This is Joseph. This is really what all of us want. And Christ has promised those things, but in a very different way and in a different time. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. Those those are the ideas in Colossians that Christ is working into us. But the vision of Egypt, the vision of Joseph, is not really for us, not yet. But this is the vision that the world is constantly pushing onto us. And we must resist these competing visions. Which gets us into the second application. Because Genesis does a really good job of capturing the competing visions of the world in contrast to God. I'm gonna quote Leon Cass here from his book. And what he does is he positions all of these various cities and nations that have been encountered in the book of Genesis with the ways of God and his calling. Unlike the city of Cain, this community is not founded on fratricide. Unlike the nations descended from Ham, this community does not begin with a revolt against fatherly authority and brotherly piety. Unlike the Mesopotamian city of Babel, this community does not have its roots in human pride and the aspiration to rational autonomy, self-sufficiency, and human self-recreation. Unlike the Canaanite cities of Sodom or Shechem, this community neither revels in sexual wildness nor preys upon strangers, and it does not ignore its own acts of injustice. And unlike the great civilization of Egypt, this nascent community seems to have accepted the given world and the limits of finitude, eschewing the quest for bodily immortality, the desire to always be young and beautiful and apotheosis, to live forever, pursued through magic, technology, and administrative genius. Instead, this incipient nation is focused on transmitting a covenantal way of life that summons human beings to be wholehearted, to execute justice, and to walk deliberately and reverently before the divine. Although it still harbors all the dangerous passions that make for family tragedy, The Israelite household has instituted an order based on awe and reverence for wives and mothers, for husbands and fathers, and for the divine. I think we can see all of the cities that are depicted in Genesis are alive and well in the alternative and competing visions that we have in our world. But God is calling us as a people out of these visions. We as a people, as a family, as the family of God, the new Israel, have a calling as a church. And we're still looking forward to those promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A kingdom, a land with the offspring as king. And we have been called to a way of righteousness and life that really at its foundation here in the book of Genesis, which I think is one of its, if you're going to say, what contributions does Genesis have towards righteousness? Righteousness. And goodness and justice is going to revolve around marriage, family, and fearing the Lord. So as a church, those are the questions. What are we going to do to build and strengthen up God's family? It's the same question that Judah and all of his brothers had to ask themselves and eventually come to a place. Which family am I building up? Which kingdom am I building up? Which nation? Which city? Are we going to fulfill God's image in us? So if you remember Philippians chapter 2, God being in, Jesus being in the nature of God gave himself up and then got to a place of glory. And that's God's calling upon our lives. Beauty, honor, all of these things that we aspire to, God has for us at a different place, in a different time, and in a different way. January 2nd, so next week we have our party. January, uh, December 26th, we're not meeting. January 2nd and January 9th, we're going to take a break from our Pentateuch series. Lawrence is going to preach a series from Psalm 90 on numbering our days. How do we look forward to live a life of wisdom and service to God? And then I'm going to spend January 9th just going over a few of the main goals and visions that we have as a church for 2022. And so we can focus our activities and efforts as a church and so that when you do your family planning as a household, because you guys all do that, right? You take two or three days every year, sit down as a household and work through who are we, what are we doing, how do we need to order our lives? Well, I'm going to encourage everybody to do that. If you've been through house church leaders training, that's a part of the homework, right? We haven't done it for a few years just because our lives have been so crazy, which is what happens. We're going to do it this year, and I'm going to be putting some tools out there so what we're going to do as a church and as households is answer these questions. Where are we at and where do we need to go? That's, that's consistent with who God is and what he's doing, what he's called us to, in righteousness and justice and wholeheartedness. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for this, this amazing and emotional story. Uh, God, we, we pray that uh, you would strengthen us because the, the challenges that we are getting from the world are increasingly intense and they are increasingly against you. And the transitions that have happened over the last 20 or 30 years um, are beyond description in terms of the world moving against your ways of righteousness and justice and wholeheartedness. So God, as a church, we, we are not unaware of these changes Our prayer, God, is that you would strengthen us to this task of serving you and holding you and fearing you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.